When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. The Telegraph. the Telegraph Podcasts. I want you to try and picture an image. Not great for a podcast, I know, but bear with me. It's a photo of a room. The shot is taken from high up in one corner from a CCTV camera. The image itself is grainy and faded in colour, but at the centre, you can clearly pick out two people standing close to each other. One, a man on the left, has his arms reached out. The other, on the right and closer to the door, is doing likewise. And between them is a package. It's the person on the right who draws the eye immediately. They're wearing a backpack. You can see they're white, the forearms are showing but you can't tell much else. Their face is covered with what looks like a balaclava and ski goggles, or maybe glasses. The point is, they're hidden. Deliberately hidden. Taking a look at this, your mind kind of wonders, you know, is, could this be the smoking gun? What's in this box? Is it hacked emails? Could it be a message from Russia? Marshall Cohen, a reporter with CNN, is part of the team that uncovered the photo. They knew the moment they saw it, they had a scoop. And it's like something from a film, because the guy had a balaclava on and sunglasses. I mean, the point being, his face is totally obscured. Yeah, I mean, if he was doing something, it seems like, you know, you might be doing something shady if you are putting on a disguise trying to avoid being seen. Clearly, he wasn't delivering a pizza, okay? Do we know what what happened to the package or what was in there at all? Unfortunately, we don't. But we do know what happened that day. WikiLeaks, the group that publishes leaked information, sent an email to say that they had the archive. It's since become public knowledge that the account they wrote to was controlled by Russian spies. Four days later, 
WikiLeaks published 20,000 hacked Democrat Party emails on the eve of its presidential convention. We also know something else. This wasn't pulled from the CCTV in a shady Moscow building or some anonymous Washington DC hotel. This was playing out in the luxurious red brick apartment block in West London, just two minutes walk from Harrods. I'm Ben Riley Smith. This is Crossfire from The Daily Telegraph. Episode 5, The Hack. In this episode, we follow the story of how one man managed to transform the American election without even leaving Belgravia. Now, there were two big releases of hacked information before the 2016 vote. One was of Democratic National Committee emails, and they showed the supposedly neutral body trying to help Hillary Clinton beat Bernie Sanders to the presidential nomination. That was the one that dropped just before party convention. Not good for Clinton. The other, which came in the final month of the campaign, was from the email account of John Podesta, Clinton's campaign chairman. Secret speeches, unguarded comments about the candidate. Again, not good for Clinton. Here's what Amelia Thompson DeVoe a reporter for the website 538, remembers of why it was so damaging for Clinton, especially the pedestrian emails. People were plainly paying attention to the leaks, and it didn't help her for pretty obvious reasons. These emails really laid bare the inner machinery of her campaign in a way that was often not flattering. I think probably if you looked under the hood in any political campaign, um, you know, you'd, you'd find things that wouldn't necessarily reflect well. But this was all happening during a sort of critical late stage in the presidential campaign. And, you know, it was a distraction. It didn't look good for her. There were, you know, there were these back and forths that I can, I can remember between her campaign advisors about how do we sort of take this person who isn't necessarily a natural politician and make her seem more authentic. And of course, that's exactly the thing you don't want happening if you are trying to present yourself as authentic um, to have, you know, the details of, of how people are trying to portray you that way behind the scenes. It was especially damaging because it did sort of, it, it tended to reinforce some negative things that were already out there. So, the hack happened. It hurt Clinton. It mattered. And that red brick building in Belgravia is the epicentre. Why? Because it's the Ecuadorian embassy. And in 2016, it was still the home of Julian Assange, the founder and architect of WikiLeaks. For almost seven years he lived there, fearing extradition to both Sweden for a rape allegation and America for the vast cache of diplomatic cables he published in 2010. It is the comings and goings in that building that I'm really interested in, because it reveals something about US elections, both the last one and the one we're about to face. Not just the ease with which they can be manipulated from afar, but also about the willingness of Trump and his allies to lean in. I went there to see the embassy myself. Well, here we are inside the Ecuadorian embassy, and it's only once you step through the door that you realise what a tiny space it actually was that Assange was occupying for those seven years. We're told the embassy is about 250 metres squared, so that's maybe a dozen rooms, and it is small. I mean, I'm standing in the 
main room that Assange used, he used a couple. It's maybe five metres squared, polished wood floor. It's been stripped bare since he's left. But talking to those people who do have a sense of what it was like then, this room was absolutely packed with computer equipment. There were 10, 20 laptops, 10 mobile phones, metal boxes to one side packed with wires and cables and internet routers. This is where he spent most of his time. Sometimes he wouldn't be seen for days having not left this room. He was also very secretive. There is a keypad on the outside with all the numbers lit up with a blue light. Only he had the code. To give you a sense of how small this area is, I'm just going to walk down the corridor from the front of the apartment to the back. We're passing a communal area. Some of the offices where the officials work, a big meeting room with a brown table. And now we're pretty much at the back of the apartments. And on my left is a second of the rooms that Assange would use. Actually, it's padlocked and taped up with yellow and black tape right now. And then if I walk all the way at the back, you pass a kitchen. And then right at the back is what was nominally his bedroom. So it's a small room, maybe three or four metres long and a couple of metres wide. There's also a shower unit. And next door, there is another small shower. So that is the totality of the space that Julian Assange lived in for the best part of seven years. It's quite remarkable, really. Understanding the full extent of WikiLeaks and Assange's involvement in the release of the hat material is hard. But luckily, there's a cheat sheet. The Mueller report is 448 pages long and contains about 200,000 words. That's the length of Moby Dick, or approaching half of War and Peace. Special counsel Robert Mueller's team had almost two years to scrutinise Russian interference and had a big section on the Democratic hat. Here's the first line from that part. The GRU hacked the computers and email accounts of organizations, employees, and volunteers supporting the Clinton campaign, including the email account of campaign chairman John Podesta. And a little later, this. In total, the GRU stole hundreds of thousands of documents from the compromised email accounts and networks. The GRU later released stolen Clinton campaign and DNC documents through online personas DC Leaks and Guccifer 2.0, and later through the organization WikiLeaks. The release of the documents was designed and timed to interfere with the 2016 U.S. presidential election and to undermine the Clinton campaign. So the core conclusions again. It was Russia that did the hack. It was WikiLeaks who partly distributed the material, and the Kremlin intended to undermine Clinton. Understanding the degree of Assange's direct involvement is more difficult. And that's where the work of CNN comes into play. Uh, My name is Marshall Cohen. I'm a reporter with CNN, where I have been since 2015. In early 2019, Cohen and his colleagues got their hands on what Fleet Street types would call a marmalade dropper. A story so good, it makes you drop your marmalade in the morning. It was incredible. CNN and CNN en Español in Ecuador and elsewhere obtained hundreds of surveillance reports. We're talking about visitor logs, daily reports and happenings at the embassy, 
video footage of Julian Assange inside meeting visitors and taking guests and still images as well from those surveillance cameras from his stay over several years. The documents were produced by a private security company on behalf of the Ecuadorian government, probably to keep tabs on Julian Assange. They were forensic in detail and give a picture of what Assange's life was like and the influence he wielded. You know, his power rivaled that of the ambassador. And if the sitting ambassador gave a decree or a decision that Julian Assange didn't like, the security locks clearly show that he would work around it and he would reach out to his very powerful allies in Quito, the Ecuadorian capital. He had a close relationship with the foreign minister of Ecuador, who of course is the boss's boss of the ambassadors. And it seemed almost that he had been amassing this power and waited for the right moment to use it. Russians, you guys report that some Russians visited Assange during the summer of 2016, and one in particular. Can you unpack that? Yeah, summer 2016, right? So turn back the clock here. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton just are now becoming the nominees of their parties. You can forget about the primaries. It's time for the general. And things are getting serious. This is when Americans start to tune in and start really paying attention and forming their opinions. Lo and behold, Julian Assange was taking visitors, Russians, at the embassy in the month of June 2016. There were several interesting guests. The most interesting, I would say, was a man by the name of Nikolai Bogachikin. He is the bureau chief for uh, RT in London. RT, of course, being the Kremlin-controlled uh, news outlet, propaganda outlet that the, the Russian government uses to spread its desired message around the world. On one of those visits, and it is incredible to read this, Nikolai Bogachikin brought a thumb drive, a USB drive, to Assange. It was, the meeting was arranged almost with no planning, according to the surveillance documents, and it required last-minute approval from the ambassador. Um, we don't know what was on that USB drive. We don't. And the reports don't say. Bogachikin denies that it had anything to do with the election, but Special Counsel Robert Mueller, in his report, says clearly that they cannot rule out the possibility that some people who visited Assange that summer brought hacked materials. Did he deny to you guys that he gave the USB stick or just that it had anything controversial on it? You know, his statement to us was, frankly, very difficult to decipher, almost gibberish. Uh, but in the past, he has mocked, proudly mocked, the possibility that he had anything to do with it. For my money, the most fascinating bits in the documents are the CCTV stills. That package drop-off we talked about at the beginning was one of them, done just days before the first WikiLeaks drop, before the convention. Another showed Assange sharing a takeaway with Andrew Muller-Magoon, a German hacker. He visited Assange 12 times before the 2016 election. The Muller report says that Muller-Magoon 
may have assisted with the transfer of these stolen documents to WikiLeaks. But it's not conclusive. Muller Magoon didn't comment when CNN approached. He's previously denied the claim. And then there's when, at the apparent insistence of America in the final weeks of the campaign, the Ecuadorian ambassador tried to put a stop to the ongoing release of information. So they took the drastic step, something they had never done before, because remember, Assange had all these powers. They shut down his internet and they shut down his phone. Now that did not stop the Podesta releases. But what did happen was that the conditions inside the embassy started to deteriorate. Assange threw a tantrum, tantrum after tantrum, and was fighting. There were physical altercations. He put his hands on people, and there's photos of this. Tensions boiled over. Things got very, very serious. And the ambassador there essentially said, you know what, that's it. You're already cut off from the internet, but I'm going to take one step further and cut you off from the outside world. No more guests. Assange was furious. He got the decision overturned by higher-ups in Ecuador, but the relationship was more fraught than ever. Soon afterwards, at 1am in the morning, two people came and removed boxes covered in blankets, as well as 100 hard drives. You can see them caught on CCTV, clear as day. CNN has reported that the people who came that night worked for WikiLeaks. Despite all the controversy and being trapped within the walls of the embassy, Assange was able to maintain the flow of information. And it was being applauded in Trump world. I read the emails, much going through them like everyone, I think, else interested in reporting or following this did. And it was clear to me that these were devastating. And Assange did interviews subsequently, said, I've got more. And they'll be equally or more devastating. Jerome Corsi, it's fair to say, splits opinion. In his eyes and those of supporters, he is an investigative journalist covering the issues the mainstream media won't touch. To critics, he's a crank. He's perhaps best known for pursuing the comprehensively debunked idea that Barack Obama wasn't born in America, the so-called birther claim. He's also a regular on Infowars, a right-wing media network associated with any number of bizarre conspiracy theories. It was birtherism which brought him close to Trump, another believer who had called to discuss the idea. Corsi agreed to talk to me in New York. I'd expected him to be like his far and brimstone personality from Infowars. He once used the platform to challenge Robert Mueller to a fistfight. Um, I'm, I'm fed up with this. I want to say to Mueller, uh, let's go out in the backyard of the Justice Department. you got to have some, let's duke it out. But while he was dogged in defending his positions, he was mild-mannered and more polite outside that bubble. As you heard, he was excited when the emails first dropped. But what he did next would result in him spending dozens of hours being grilled by Mueller's team. He tried to get to Assange. At first, Corsi demurs when I bring this up. But then I quote a bit of the Mueller report. What about, it? What about the, Ted, the Ted Malik thing? Can I just read? I was going back through the Mueller sure. report and read the bit that, that Mueller says, based on Malik, I think. He says, according to Malik, Corsi asked him to put Corsi in touch with Assange, whom Corsi wished to interview. Malik recalled that Corsi also suggests that individuals in the orbit of UK politician Nigel Farage 
might be able to contact Assange and ask if Malik knew them. And then Malik tells you that um, he might not be able to do it. But that seems to suggest that you were trying to reach Assange in some form. That was quick, so let me repeat it. Ted Malik, another Trump friend who lives in Britain, said Corsi asked to be put in touch with Assange. Corsi also floated the idea of getting Nigel Farage, the former UKIP leader, to make the introduction. Corsi says it was his editor at the website World Net Daily, where he writes, who was pushing the idea. Uh, my editors were pushing me to do it. Uh, if Joseph Farah had gotten me an airplane ticket, I'd have gone to London to see Assange. I would have rung the bell. I want to distinguish between, yeah, I was willing to make some efforts and put out some feelers and all the rest of it. But in my heart of hearts, I thought it was a waste of time. Because I thought, even if I do get into see Assange, it's not going to produce anything. He's not going to tell me any more than he has already said. So, so your argument is, yes, you did make some cursory attempts to get in touch yeah, with Assange, sure. but these, you didn't break your back doing it, and it didn't happen in the end. It, didn't, it never happened. And I, if I had wanted it to happen, if I had been serious about it, I would have gone to see Assange. I mean, look, I went to Kenya to look for Obama's birth certificate. I'm not hesitant to do these things. But uh, I, I considered it to be a fool's errand. What do you say to people who connect the dots and say, Russia hacked the Democrats and gave emails to WikiLeaks? Nonsense. But wait, 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 let me... Let, silly, let me silly. just finish. Let me just finish. Completely the, stupid. Let, let me finish the line, which is the kind of... Allegation, I suppose, which is, A, Russia hacked the Democrats and gave it to WikiLeaks, the emails. B, that Roger Stone and Jerome Corsi, friends of Trump, reached out to Assange to try and get the emails once they became aware of them. And that C, they would pass them back to the campaign because they would damage his biggest rival. Oh, you sound like Mueller. And in fact, if that had been the case, why was I not indicted? I wasn't indicted because it wasn't the case. Roger Stone is a name that may sound familiar. He's another Trump ally who showed interest in trying to get the information on future WikiLeaks dumps. In 2019, he was found guilty for lying to and obstructing Congress, a crime, partly over his communications with Trump campaign officials at the time. Corsi ultimately has a solid fallback. Never met Assange, never talked to Assange. To invite onto the stage... The man behind Brexit. But the same can't be said for another Trump friend. A Brit. The United Kingdom Independence Party. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Nigel Farage. Nigel Farage's friendship with Trump was forged in the fire of the 2016 campaign. Where America's political class steered clear of endorsing him, Farage went all in. Uh, But I will say this. If I was an American citizen, I wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton if you paid me. In fact, I wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton if she paid me. In March 2017, after the election and Trump's inauguration, but while the Russian scandal was escalating in Washington, Farage was spotted walking in to the Ecuadorian embassy. He remained button-lipped about it at the time. But a year later, an American who'd worked with Christopher Steele said he thought Farage had once given Assange a thumb drive. The story exploded. Had Farage been a conduit between Trump and Assange? 
One gloomy afternoon in March, I got to ask Farage himself. We talked in a studio just off London's Leicester Square, where he does a radio show for LBC. I've got to ask you about the, uh, the mystery trip to see Julian Assange. Well, there's no been. mystery. I mean, and, and again, I mean, I mean, goodness gracious me. I mean, some of this stuff, you know, that I was passing memory sticks direct from the president to Assange. I mean, I read all this with incredulity. I have, since January 2017, uh, a relationship that I'd had with LBC for some years. I'd come in occasionally and guest host a programme or whatever. And I decided in January 2017 to make it a regular thing. I do have a few guests. Funny enough, Alistair Campbell's quite a regular, which is quite amusing. Uh, But LBC reached out to Assange because the feeling was that no British journalist had done a big piece with Julian Assange for a very long time. So LBC reached out to organise a meeting and they asked me would I go. I went with my producer. Look at the footage. The two of us walk in the building. That's why I was there. LBC themselves have backed that up, confirmed it in writing. There is no conspiracy. And Assange never mentioned, because it's interesting, because Assange is, according to the US legal case, Assange is the guy who got the... Democrat emails from Russia, then put them out in the open. So he never talks about hacked emails or no. Russia when you talk to him. No, I talked to him about the European arrest warrant, which I'm particularly interested in. I've been opposed to it from the start. Uh, I don't like the way that it's applied. Um, and clearly, we talked about well, you know, you're holed up in this place. You've been here for five years. I mean, when are you going to get out? Uh, and what the interview was, was going to be about was, well, what assurances did he want before he left the front door or was he going to stay there forever? And I mean, as much as anything, we'd have done it as a human interest story. When you were talking to Trump and his team before the election, did, was there ever any conversation about Russia, no. working with Russia, colluding no. with Russia? No, we didn't talk about that. Um, we, I mean, I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly cautious uh, to relay private conversations with him because uh, I think he's too often surrounded by people who we frankly can't trust. Uh, so I'm cautious about that. But no, we've never discussed that at all. And if you really think about where Russia fitted in to his election campaign, it was an absolutely minuscule part of what he was talking about. Before leaving, I tried one last time to push on Assange. Farage was categorical. So you didn't pick up the sense that this guy was at the heart of trying to support Trump with a hacked emails from the Democrat campaign, because that's what he's accused of. No, I mean, you know, I mean, would 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 someone like Assange uh, naturally support Clinton and the State Department? Well, obviously not. He's their sworn enemies anyway. So would he have preferred Trump to win? Well, I I don't know, but I guess so. But then he'd probably preferred any Republican to win. I mean, that's the point, really. The suggestion that's thrown to you that you were some kind of Trump stooge passing on a message to Assange. As I say, if only it was true, I could write wonderful books and tell huge stories, but it just is a load of old cobblers. Since I've talked to Corsi and Farage, a lot has changed. Assange is no longer cooped up in the Ecuadorian embassy. He's cooped up in a British jail cell, fighting extradition to America over his role in the 2010 Diplomatic Cables League. No charges have been made about his actions in 2016, for now at least. Yet the vulnerabilities this saga uncovered have not gone away. They are just as relevant, if not more so, in this election year. The information revolution continues unabated. Material found online is only becoming more influential as the media landscape fractures. In 2020, it is still possible 
to someone 3,000 miles away from voters to wreak havoc on an election campaign. There was something else, too. It was not only Corsi and Stone who cheered on WikiLeaks as they disrupted the election. That came from the very top. WikiLeaks! WikiLeaks! I love WikiLeaks. Oh, we love WikiLeaks. Boy, they have really WikiLeaks. Moscow and Belgravia had both had their say and found a warm welcome in Trump's corner of Washington. Who's to say this year it won't happen again? Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Crossfire from The Telegraph. Subscribe to this feed to make sure you don't miss it. And in the meantime, you can read more about this story, including details that we just couldn't fit in, at telegraph.co.uk forward slash crossfire. Next week on Crossfire. It takes a while for the significance to sink in. The White House press secretary is suggesting that GCHQ helped monitor his boss. What the heck is GCHQ? That's the initials for the British spying agency. It's unimaginable that he would not be aware that he is discussing sensitive issues with the number one counterintelligence threats in America at that point. So I can, I can confirm that I'm not a spy. Okay, we're done. We're done. Okay, can I ask you one just on the GCH? No, you can go. You can f- off is what you can do.